Good morning, Servants Church. Really good to have you guys here. If you guys want to turn in your Bible or your electronic device to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4 as we continue to study verse by verse through Luke's gospel. It's good for us to remember what the Lord has done. It's good for us to remember what makes us right with God. And it's, I think, appropriate that we've done communion before this message because this is one of those passages that we easily uh, or, or can easily make us turn our eyes onto ourselves when it's meant to cause us to turn our eyes unto Jesus. It's definitely a situation where we can feel the weight of our failure and lose focus on the success that Jesus had, the victory that Jesus brought. And so we want to look at how Jesus passed the test, the test in the wilderness in the first 13 verses. So I'm going to read just the first two verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it together. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And Father, we have a sense of what that hunger may have been like. We can only imagine physically what that was like. But we hunger, Lord, now for that fellowship that we've had in the past, that closeness and that openness in person. Lord, we, we long, we're hungry, Lord, to be in a place where we love you as you deserve and we love one another as you deserve. Lord, we long for the things that you have for us and yet we fall short. So Lord, I pray that as we see the victory of Jesus here, as he's been tested and he passed the test, Lord, may our faith grow. Lord, may we be assured of this is how we overcome through faith in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, I pray that you minister to us by your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about this section by answering three main questions, all, all to do with this idea of tempting and testing. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because in the New Testament, you'll see this word tempt or temptation, but you also see this word test or prove. And often it's the same Greek word. It's a word that can mean either one depending on the context in which it's used. And so we, we see like uh, there's, there's this verse that says in James uh, chapter 1 that, uh, that God uh, tempts no one, nor can God be tempted. But then we see here that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus to be tempted by the devil. Uh, we know that since God can't be tempted, that the godness of Jesus wasn't tempted towards sin, and yet in his humanity he was. And, and, and there's all these theological questions that can swirl around our head when we look at a passage like this. And in doing so, we can miss the main things, the important bits that, that really God wants us to see, the things that Luke intended his audience to understand. And so to make sure we don't miss those things, we're going to ask certain questions and see from the text where those answers are. 
So the first question we want to ask is, why did God allow Jesus to be tempted? Now, we just read clearly, right, in verse 1, that Jesus was both empowered by the Spirit. We saw that a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 3, where Jesus, when he goes to be baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him. And he's then, at this point, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we see that Luke makes sure that we see that the genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, who's called the Son of God. And also, Jesus is declared by the Father to be the Son in whom he's well pleased. And so, here's Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is leading them into the wilderness. And part of this is Jesus being prepared for his earthly ministry. This is a way for, for, that Luke is showing us and that the other gospel writers show us that Jesus, when he began to do the thing that the Father sent him to do, he was holy from the beginning. That he proved himself to be the Son of God who's, who's pleasing to the Father. And so he's led by the Spirit or into this testing. And I think this is important right off the bat for us to think about because sometimes we think, we ask the question, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this test to happen? And in seeing Jesus as our example, we need to see that sometimes God does indeed lead us towards a test. Not for temptation, not so that we'd fall into sin, but a test to prove something to us about ourselves. Something that he knows, but we need to see. But also we see in the second part of verse 2, we, we see where it says that he's, he's being tested here in the wilderness, in the first part of verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the second part of verse 2, where see, he's being tested, and there's this testing from the enemy comes, listen, when he's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Now, there, the, the, the issue that it's 40 days is significant. We'll come back to that in a second. But it's important to recognize here that, that, that he's being tested at his most vulnerable point as a human being. That, that when, he's want, when God wants to prove to us, when, when God wants to prove to those that would receive Jesus' ministry that he was indeed worthy to be the revelation of who God is and what God's doing, he does this, proves this, when he's at his weakest, most vulnerable point as a human being. Now, but also, it's not an accident that this takes place in the wilderness. That Jesus is being tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, if you guys know something about your Bibles, you remember in the Old Testament, what happened to God's chosen people, Israel? They go through the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And they're tested in the wilderness. In fact, this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. That God says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you hunger. Now, if you know the whole story of, from the book of Exodus, you know what happened. As they're tested for 40 years, what did they do? Did they pass with flying colors? No, they failed miserably. They failed miserably. They murmured, they complained. And in doing so, they, they showed themselves, though they're God's chosen people, they're not worthy to be God's chosen people. But the reason God's allowing Jesus to be tempted is to show us where Israel failed as a nation, Jesus succeeds as their king. He succeeds. He comes through. Now, here's the second question we want to answer. What temptations did Jesus face? 
What, what did he actually go through? This is going to be important, especially as we want to apply this to our lives towards the end. But there's three categories, really, of temptation that Jesus experienced. And, and we experience the same categories, right? The first one we're going to see in verses 3 and 4 is he, he had this choice. He was presented with this choice, which is often what a temptation is. He was presented with a choice to choose his bodily desires over God's dictates, what God says. Look at what it says in verse 3. Then the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. That's what he said. Now what's interesting here, we're going to notice that, that every verse that Jesus quotes ties in is from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's all from this section from verses or chapter 6 to chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, which is all about the wilderness wanderings of God's people. Again, to show that he passed the test. But what I want you to see here is, is really what the devil's lie is. The same lie that he brought to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it is, I can give you what God is keeping from you. That's the lie. And we often hear this lie or susceptible to this lie when we lack. We lack something. We're hungry for something. And the devil says, well, I can give it to you. If you, if you want that, I can give it to you. God's holding back, but I won't hold back on you. But he is a liar. And the truth that, that Jesus brings, God's truth that Jesus brings is, is this. He's saying, I'm promising you more. God is promising you more than simple body satisfaction, bodily satisfaction. Isn't it amazing how often our lives, we think our lives are about what we can do to satisfy ourselves. And, and so we, we see good things that God has given us. He's given us these certain bodily appetites. We have an appetite for, for sex. We've been created with that. Most people have an appetite for sex. So God creates a place where that can happen in marriage. But what happens when your marriage is bad? Or when you're single? You have this desire. And the devil says, well, God's holding back on you. Otherwise, he would have gave you a better spouse or a spouse at all. But I can give you what you need. Or our, even our desire for food. We, we all like enjoy a good meal. We're all thankful that God didn't just say, all you're going to eat is oatmeal your entire existence, you know? We're thankful for taste buds and these kinds of things. But what happens when we just don't have what we want or we think, gosh, if I was just more satisfied with food, I'd be happy? What happens? We abuse food. We get into gluttony or eating disorders. Bad things happen. And the, and the issue is, God's given us these good things. Our bodies are good things. The physical world is a good thing. But we turn those good things into a God thing, and, and partly because the enemy lies to us and says, well, actually, there's something better that you can have in this physical world, and I'll give it to you because God's holding back. And God says, no, don't you understand? The truth is, I have more for you than just simply satisfying your bodily appetites. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8 again, the, the rest of uh, 8.3 says this. We'll read it. It says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But notice, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The promises that God makes us, the, the, 
the framework that God gives us to, to understand what our bodily appetites are for, how they can bring glory to God, how can they bring good to us, how they're limited, how they only are a shadow of what we're waiting for when the Lord sets up his kingdom in full. Those things are what we need to focus on, especially when we're in the time of severe hunger. And when Jesus was in that time of basically, if he, if he literally fasted for 40 days, he's at a time right before death where your body actually begins to feel hunger again. If you fast for that long, there's a, after a few weeks, you don't even feel hunger anymore. But right to the end, before you die, you start feeling hungry again. In a sense, Jesus is saying, yeah, I might be close to death, but it doesn't matter. I trust the Father's promises. I trust what God has said his kingdom is about. So he chose God's dictates over bodily desires. But here's the second temptation in verses 5 to 8. It's, it's this temptation to choose personal gain over God's glory. All of us can be susceptible to this. Notice what he says in verse 5. It says, The devil took him up, took Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will just worship me, it will all be yours. Now here's how the devil works. He, he speaks to us in half-truths. The Bible does refer to Satan or the devil as the, uh, as the god of this world. Uh, John, uh, the disciple, wrote of, 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 of Satan saying that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He is the chief influencer, you might say, of a, a broken world system. But that doesn't mean he has authority over this world. But here he is saying something that Jesus obviously knew was a lie, but would probably be tempting with this in the sense of saying, listen, all these things can be yours. In other words, he says, I can give you what God's keeping from you. And God says to him, listen, There's nothing you can have that's greater than me. It's interesting because here's one of the things that we fall into. We, we can get in this place where we think, man, if I can just get to this position in life, if I can just create these life circumstances, then I'll finally be happy. And so we, as, as Jesus followers, we as believers in God, what do we do? We say, God, please help me get to this. I'll give you all the glory. I'll say, thank you, God. God did this for me. God's given this for me. But really what we're doing, is we're seeing God as a means to an end. I want this, and I want God to be the genie in the bottle that gets me there. This is what we do. This is the temptation that we face. And the devil says, well, God wants to keep that from you. But God's saying, no, I'm not keeping anything from you. I want him to give you the best I can give you, which is myself. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, here's what we see, this picture of when we finally have what God creates us to have, created us for. An angel yells this, speaks this out. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed 
away. The emphasis there, God himself will be with his people. You see, everything that we think is everything that we think is good in this life, everything that we desire in this life, like I said, even when we do it the right way, even when we get it the right way, is simply a shadow of what it's going to be when we see God face to face, when we're with him for eternity. We've been created to be with him for him. And the temptation is, well, actually, I want some my own personal gain. Well, God says, no, no, my glory, what I'm going to give to you, you knowing me, there's nothing greater than that. When Jesus was faced with this temptation, what did he choose? I choose God's glory. What does he say? Look at verse 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus says, devil, you can offer me all these things, but they belong to my father and I'm going to worship him. It's interesting too when it comes to worship, Notice that, that uh, Satan doesn't say, you know, if you just stop worshiping, then you'll have what you want. No, he says, just worship me. Here's a counterfeit worship that you can enter into, and then I'll give you all these things. Don't forget, he's a liar. He almost never comes through on his deals. But Jesus says, no, I want the Father. I'm going to worship the Lord. Here's a third way. That, that, that third temptation that Jesus faced, again, some, so similar to what we face, this choice between an individual experience over God's presence. Because what, what does Satan do? Verse 9. He takes him to, says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then what does Satan do? He starts quitting scripture at Jesus. He says, if, he says, for it is written, he's quoting Psalm 91 here, or Psalm 90. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, I want you to be, understand something here. The devil is not misquoting the scripture. He's misapplying it. He's misapplying it. He's basically saying, Jesus, what this is talking about is the fact that you never have to have pain. You never have to have uh, sorrow. God's given angels to make sure that you're taken care of. This is all about that. He's misapplying it. This is one of the reasons why we are and should be concerned with how much false teaching is in the church. Because much of false teaching in the church isn't simply like an, an ignoring Scripture or uh, staying away from Scripture. Most of it is a twisting of Scripture. Hey, this isn't really about God. This is all about you. You have your best life. You get what you want. You use Christianity to achieve the means that you want. In other words, the devil's lie is, hey, the scripture's about your individual experience. Now, don't get me wrong. The scripture does have a lot to say about our individual experience, both good and bad. Both what we can uh, expect to experience in the sense of suffering, even as Jesus followers, even especially as Jesus followers. But also good experiences. A peace that surpasses all understanding is a great experience. It's a great thing that God offers us that we should pursue. A joy inexpressible and full of glory is a great experience that God wants us to experience and we should pursue. 
both come as we seek God by faith, no matter what our circumstances are. But this idea that the enemy's trying to sell to Jesus, this lie he's trying to sell to Jesus is, no, this is just about what you can experience. Find the spiritual buzz that you're looking for. But Jesus says, no. Verse 12, he answered him, it is said, uh, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Same word that's used for tempted. Now, now, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, here's God's truth. God's with me no matter what I experience. He's with me when I'm on this pinnacle. He's with me if you push me off. He, he's with me as I walk in this life, no matter if I feel him or not. I don't have to have angels catch me. I don't got to fly through the air to know that, that God is with me because God has said he is with me no matter what. Now, as we talk about these temptations that Jesus faced, faces, it's interesting because what he's doing here is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He says, you should, it says, the, the Deuteronomy says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, Massa is referred to in Exodus chapter 17, okay? This is when this testing took place. It says, uh, Moses writes, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrying of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, the context is when they're thirsty and they're saying, Lord, give us water. And they start complaining, why did you bring us out to this wilderness to die? And so God says, Moses, strike the rock. The water will come out. And the water came out. And he names the place Massa and Meribah because why the people were quarreling with Moses, fighting with Moses. And, and the, what's revealed to us is their main complaint is, God with us or no? Do something to prove that God is with us. God, if you're with us, you've got to do this miracle right now. God, if it's with us, you've got to show yourself up to us right now. And Jesus is saying, no, that's demonic. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe God does miracles, supernatural things today. I, I believe God even uh, desires us to be open to the, the, those supernatural manifestations. We should pursue those things, but, or we should desire those things, but we should be pursuing love for each other and love for God, whether we experience those things or not. See, the temptation Jesus faced here was, hey, wouldn't it be a rush, Jesus, if you jumped off this 450-foot uh, pinnacle down into the Kidron Valley and angels caught you? Now, that would be a rush, let's be honest. It's like bungee jumping without a bungee. Pretty cool. But Jesus is saying, that's, that, you don't do that. You don't put the Lord to the test. You don't just seek an experience and say, God, you've got to prove yourself to me. God's with us always. And he quotes a verse that refers to a time when people were going, no, nah, God's not with us because we're not getting the experience we want. Now, this is where we need to start thinking about how we can respond to this, how, how we can apply this stuff to our lives. So, so let's just ask a simple question. Which of these three lies are you most tempted with? Is it choosing your bodily desires over what God says about those things? Is it choosing your personal gain over God's glory? Is, is, is your life about, man, how could I gain? How could I make myself look good, feel good, whatever the case might be? Is it your individual experience? Are you, are, are you questioning God because your life isn't happening the way you think it ought to happen? Which of those things is the biggest temptation? Or is it all the above? 
And once you begin to identify, and, and, and you know, it's easy for us to, to kind of wax humble and say, well, it's all of them, I, I feel all that stuff. But, you know, we, we need to be more specific than this. In fact, we, we need to ask God to learn to overcome these things. And I'm using ask as, uh, as, as a way to remember how this works. Ask, seek, and know. We need to ask God to show us the wrong things about him that we're believing. As, as was brought up um, uh, last week with uh, Zach when Zach taught from Psalm 139. Those great scriptures about search me and know me. If there's anything in my heart, show me if there's any w- wicked way in me. We need to be doing that. We need to say, God, what is it? What's the specific thing in my life that needs to be dealt with? Show me, Lord. Search my heart. Show me what's there. Then, then as God begins to show us, what we need to do is we need to seek God, but with the help of other believers. Now, I know this is hard right now. Because right now we're in a place where, man, we can't even really be with as many people as we want to be. And it's tough. It's not as nice. It's, it, it was much better when we could, at a church service or at the break time, when, but, you know, when we used to have those long, lovely 20-minute conversations over great coffee, it was so much better to be able to have that conversation and just say, could you pray for me? Or you, you kind of sense something's not quite right with someone and say, hey, how can I pray for you? And those great times of ministry one to another, they were so great when we could have that hand-on-the-shoulder prayer and that hug afterwards, and we can't do that right now, and it's frustrating, but guess what? People are still only a phone call away. And men, listen, we are not meant to walk this walk on our own, especially as God begins to show us things where we think, man, Lord, I really need some victory. Here's the issue. The issue is we need to seek God's help with other believers. This is where unity comes from. You know, the, the psalm that in, in Psalm 133, behold how, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, unity does have a doctrinal basis that we believe the right things. That, that, that's there. It's in Ephesians 4 is, makes that true. But unity is experienced as we seek God together as broken sinners who know he's the Savior. This is how we overcome this temptation. And the last bit, we need to know God's character and his promises. The Psalm 119 verse that's referenced there is where the psalmist talks about, um, uh, I've hid the Lord's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. Teach me your statutes, Lord, that I might not sin against you. When we study God's word, are we looking to see, God, how how does this work for me? How does this benefit me? Or are we saying, God, I want to know who you are and what you've promised? Who are you, Lord? I want to know the kind of God you are. Show yourself to me. And and show me, Lord, what you're promising me. Guys, this is how we overcome temptation. Now, here's what we're seeing, right? Jesus is in this place. And he's, just like we, he's experiencing the temptation to choose bodily desires over God's dictates. But he succeeds. He chooses God's word instead, what God has said he wants from him. He was tempted to choose his own personal gain over God's glory, but he waits for God to be glorified through his life and death and resurrection. He was tempted to to, um, experience this individual, have his own individual experience, do the things that he could probably rightly have, and the Son of God said, I'm going to make 
the stone into bread. I'm going to jump off the pinnacle and have angels catch me. He could command the legion of angels. We know that from scripture. He could do that. But instead he says, no, I'm trusting that God is with me. He led me into this wilderness temptation. I'm going to stay right here with him. And so this brings us to the last question. And it's an important question for us to understand both Jesus' victory and our victory. That is, how long did Jesus' temptation last? Well, in one sense, it lasted this 40-day season that was preparing him for ministry. The Lord has him go through this. In fact, when we see these three temptations, don't picture in your mind him kind of wandering aimlessly in the, in, the, in the desert for 40 days, and then the last minute, boom, the, the devil comes. It's more than that. This is kind of probably a picture of the types of temptations that were happening through the enemy as he's wandering the wilderness, seeking the Lord, trying to prepare for ministry. But he prepares. And there's something great about this, because what does it say in verse 13? It says, and when the devil had ended his every temptation, he departed from him. This is what the Bible tells us in the book of James, right? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. What happens? He flees. This is good news. Because the enemy does attack for a season, but he also leaves. We were asking that first question, why is God allowing Jesus to be tempted? To prepare him. Why is the Lord allowing the enemy to harass us? To prepare us. To make us better able to do things that he's called us to do. Think of the, uh, the person of Job in the Old Testament. But also, it says, listen in verse 13, that he leaves, that the enemy leaves, but it says he departed from him until an opportune time. Now here's what we, we know. We see the enemy coming against Jesus in his ministry through de uh, demonized people, uh, through, through, through uh, religious resistance, the religious people resisting him. Through political resistance, the political people were sus suspicious of him. Uh, through his own temptation when he's in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll get to that later on in Luke 22. In other words, his whole ministry was constantly Jesus being tested by the devil, tested by the devil, tested by the devil. Why? So that he has a whole lifetime to prove that he is that perfect high priest. And this is where it's really important that we don't look into ourselves and go, yeah, I need to be like Jesus and resist temptation. Now, this is where we need to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you brought victory over temptation. I want to close with these verses. And this gives us another chance to respond. Hebrews chapter 4, some classic verses. These are some great verses, some great promises to memorize, by the way. In that, ask, seek, know, this would be some good things to know and commit to, to memory. It says in Hebrews 4, 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Where we have failed, Jesus has passed the test. That's our confession. We're holding fast that. We don't hold fast to our potential to be to get it right. We hold fast to Jesus' perfection. He got it right. Lord, our confession is you. Jesus, we confess you as our Lord and our Savior. It's you that we're holding fast to. But also, where we fail, Jesus sympathizes. It's not as if Jesus passed the test and goes, what's wrong with you people? Step it up. He sympathizes. He says, listen, this is Hebrews 4.15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he, uh, uh, one who, is in, who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
He understands how difficult it is for us to face our bodily desires and our hunger for personal gain and our, des- and, and our wanting of an individual experience. He knows that these things are a temptation away from what God has said, what God has promised. And he says, I get it. I get it. It's hard. But if I have overcome sin, I will help you to learn to overcome these temptations. And this brings us to the last verse in Hebrews 4.16, where he says, the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for what? To help. Grace to help in time of need. You see, this is what the Lord is saying. You know, listen, I know that it's hard. And I know you can't wait for all these trials and temptations to be over. I get it. I really, really do. But listen, mine is a throne of grace. Come to me. Come to me. Mine's a throne of grace. Lord, I know there's grace. I know there's forgiveness. No, no, no. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just a right standing with me. It is that. But more than that, it's grace Not only do I have mercy on your failings, but I'll give grace to help. So you can learn to say, Lord, I want to be more like Jesus where I choose what you say over what my body is demanding of me. Lord, you can give me the grace to be more like Jesus so that I want your glory. Lord, I want you more than anything else I can gain in this life. And if it means me failing to gain that, so be it. God, I, I trust you for the grace that I can experience your presence. You are with me always, and I don't have to test you to experience you. I can just trust you. Why? Because he's made this great promise. Jesus passed the test so we can have confidence that one day when we see God face to face, we can expect him to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've passed the test. In Jesus. Amen. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of this. I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe that Jesus is that perfect high priest. That the temptations he experienced were real and he overcome. And because he overcame, Lord, we can learn to be overcomers through faith in him. God, help us to believe that. Help us to keep turning to you. Help us to keep believing that your throne is not a throne of wrath, it's a throne of grace. Help us to believe that as we turn to you, we can obtain mercy and find that grace to help. And Lord, I just want to pray for anyone who's watching this online or even anyone here this morning who who doesn't quite know you, doesn't know that grace. They've heard of that grace but they haven't believed for that yet. Lord, would you give them that faith? Would you bring them to a place where they cry out to you and say, God, I need your grace. I have failed, but I do believe that Jesus succeeded on my behalf. Lord, help them. And help us, Lord, who know you, to walk that way. To keep asking, keep seeking, keep knowing you and your promises. For we pray it in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you all soon.